Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 10, The Builder. We left off last time with the death of Krum in 814. The previous 11 years of his reign had been a wild ride, and his sudden death, just as he was preparing a massive attack on Constantinople, brought it all to a screeching halt. Now Krum left a son and successor, Omartag, but he was only a boy when his father died. Certainly, he was not ready to take the throne, and so a short power vacuum ensued. So after Krum's death, three boyars rose and fell in quick succession as they each scrambled for power. Dukum, Ditsang, and Tsok. Each came and went in the span of a few months. The latter two were known to the Byzantines as persecutors of Christians. In the midst of this chaos, there were Bulgarian troops scattered throughout Thrace, so the Byzantine emperor Leo, the Armenian, threw a force together and marched on the Bulgarians in their confusion. Yes, once again, the tables seemed to have turned. So the Byzantines won a small skirmish in Thrace, and Omartag managed to escape unharmed. Ultimately, though, this battle wasn't terribly significant, although it likely pushed both sides closer to the negotiating table. But it did, in a way, buy time for the Bulgarians. So by the time it was over, a little while later, Omartag, despite his young age and all this turmoil, did manage to secure himself on the throne against all pretenders by the end of 815. And so, the short interregnum of sorts ended without too much bloodshed or the Byzantines gaining too much ground. But Omartag knew well that his luck could not last forever. He knew that he was young, relatively inexperienced, and no great warrior as his father was. He also knew that the Byzantines were once again attempting to create an alliance with the Frankish Empire in the West. So, as much as he may wanted to pick up where his father left off at attacking the Byzantines, he was a wiser man than that. The danger of a two-front war against the Franks and the Byzantines would be existential. So, he began his reign by securing a 30-year peace treaty with the Byzantines, using the force of his father's recent victories to secure relatively good terms. The result was one of the most relatively, comparatively, peaceful reigns that Bulgaria had yet seen. The treaty in many ways marked a new level of Byzantine-Bulgarian relations. The signing ceremony was conducted with both pagan and Christian ceremonies. Now, this was scandalous to many Byzantines who were absolutely outraged that their emperor had participated in pagan ceremonies, implying that the Bulgarian pagan beliefs carried some legitimacy or even equality with Christianity. Now, unfortunately, we have only a few segments of this treaty preserved. But, first, but the first thing it did was establish a border between the two states. So the new border ran from the Gulf of Borgas to around the modern town of Khaskovo. This new frontier was comprised of rivers, mountains, 
and another elaborate defensive ditch. It was therefore perfect for Omartag, as he wasn't really interested in moving the frontier farther into Thrace and closer to Constantinople. On this frontier, the Bulgarians dug this huge ditch on the far side and built a rampart which ran the length of the border. On this great fence, as the Byzantines called it, the Erkesea, as the Bulgarians knew it, Bulgarian soldiers kept watch day and night. The second treaty provision provided for a huge population exchange. The Byzantines who had been captured in the past few decades were exchanged for many of the Slavs living in the Byzantine Empire, some of whom had never actually been Bulgarian subjects. But the Bulgarians allowed the Byzantines to retain many of the fortresses which had been destroyed by Krum, including Anchialis, Tiveltus, Philippopolis, and Serdica. However, they were not rebuilt and would make for easy prey later on. Masambria and Adrianople, however, were rebuilt, likely because they were commercial as well as military centers. So what we're seeing here, in a way, is a Bulgarian military fortification of the border, while Byzantines are really not kind of militarily fortifying the border. They're rebuilding some commercial centers, sending the border region up to be economically viable, but really not developing it militarily. Now, finally, the treaty provided for mutual defense. If the authority of either emperor was challenged, to each, each was obligated to come to the other's aid. This provision will lead down the road to a few conflicts during Omartag's reign. Okay, so taking a moment to step back. After this treaty in the reign of Krum, Bulgaria is around twice as large, having expanded mostly into the Pannonian Plain north of the Carpathian Mountains. An established and well-guarded frontier with the Byzantines has been established, with the Bulgarian defenses being well-maintained, while the former Byzantine fortresses remain in ruins. So with this new status quo firmly established, Omartag sets out about making internal improvements. This meant, in part, centralizing authority, particularly in the newly conquered land of the Avars. In 818, three Slavic tribes living in these lands rebelled against the centralizing power with the support of the Emperor of the Franks, Louis the Pious. Now, this is going to be an issue ongoing for the next decade, so I'm going to kind of leave that rebellion to the side for a moment and come back to it a little later. This is because in the meantime, a new Byzantine emperor, Michael II, comes to power in 820, reaffirming the peace treaty with Omartag. But in 823, Michael has his own rebellion to contend with. A man named Thomas was preparing to lay siege to Constantinople and become emperor. So now, just as so many of his predecessors had done, Omartag intervenes. But there are two different competing narratives about how the intervention happened and why exactly it happened, so we're going to discuss that. So the first of these is says that Michael II asked Omartag to come to his aid, and Omartag, honoring the treaty, did. The second is that Omartag offered to help in exchange for gold, but was turned away. Michael II apparently did not think it seemly for pagans to kill Christians in the aid of other Christians. In this version of events, Omartag enters imperial territory anyways and is later forgiven by Michael for the breach of the treaty as he didn't really have much of a choice than to forgive Omartag for jumping in and intervening. But, whichever of these is true, Thomas raises the siege of Constantinople so he can march and meet the Bulgarian army. 
They were waiting. The two armies met on the north shore of the Sea of Marmara. Now, we have a number of conflicting sources here as well that claim that either the Bulgarians destroyed the rebels led by Thomas or that Thomas killed so many Bulgarians that he forced them to withdraw. But frankly, whichever one of these is true, whether it was a victory for the Bulgarians or a defeat, the end result was more or less the same because Thomas was unable to properly resume the siege that he had left. It's a long story. It's not too relevant for us. But what we need to know is that ultimately Thomas is captured and killed with Michael II staying on the throne. So now jumping back to those Slavic tribes in the Frankish frontier, while Omertog had been distracted down in Thrace, they had continued to make trouble. One of the three rebelling tribes had been subdued, but the other two remained and were in discussions with the Franks. Omertag knew that he couldn't make a move on these tribes until he was secure in his relationship with the Franks. Again, the danger of a two-front war was just too great. If Bulgaria were at war with the Byzantines and with the Franks, it would mean it's almost certain destruction. You can think of this as analogous to Germany in both world wars, this sort of existential fear of a two-front war and the knowledge that that means almost certain defeat. So, in 824, the Bulgarians sent a delegation all the way to the court of the Emperor Louis the Pious in Aachen, in today's western Germany, to come up with a more precise agreement for the borders between their two states. But Louis was a very cautious ruler, so he waited until he received delegates from the rebellious Slavs first. He sent the Bulgarians back home with an ambiguous letter and several of his officials who were instructed to learn more about this strange place in the east called Bulgaria. Omertag tried yet again. He sent more ambassadors in 826. Now this time, they were demanding that Louis make up his mind about the border and his relationship with these rebellious tribes. But Louis was as indecisive as ever. He claimed to have heard a rumor that Omartag was dead, and therefore he certainly couldn't agree to anything, and had to send word back to Bulgaria to check on the status of Omartag. Now, Omartag was generally a peaceful man compared to most Khans, as I mentioned, especially compared to his father. But really, his patience could only extend so far. So, in 827, he gives up. He invades the Frankish ally of Croatia, a Slavic uh, kingdom just to his west, by sending ships up the Drava and Danube rivers. The Slavs along these rivers surrender to Bulgarian rule as the Franks recoil in the shock of the suddenness of the attack. Within a short time, the Frankish governor of the region was fired, and Emperor Louis led an invasion, but without any real success. It was much harder for Louis to project his power into the Balkans than it was for Omertag. It was just really, really far away. Now, this conflict will drag on for years, with the Bulgarians having much more success than the Franks. But as it concludes after the death of Omertag, we're going to talk about the end of that next time. Still, we can take a moment to marvel at the fact that these two states, based in Aachen, where the modern borders of Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands meet, and Pliska in eastern Bulgaria, today that, that these two capitals are sort of interacting with each other and in conflict and in negotiations. Now, today... If you take a car, it would take you about as much time to drive between these two places, from Aachen to Pliska, as it would to take to drive from Pliska to Damascus. And those roads are much worse. But just to give you some idea, these are massive, massive distances. Okay, so at this point, you're probably beginning to wonder why on earth this episode has the word builder in the title. 
or why Omertag is known as Omertag the Builder. Well, despite what you've heard, the reign of Omertag was, again, really relatively peaceful, uh, and it definitely had a huge amount of building. But first, I wanted to get through a rough chronology before discussing those aspects. So now we've discussed all the kind of major military and chronological issues that are going on, so now we can jump aside and talk more about the building. So first, to Pliska. Now, the Bulgarian capital, as you'll remember, was not exactly in great shape at this point. The Byzantines had taken the city and destroyed much of it, not once, but twice in the past few years. So it was only logical for Omertag to take on this rebuilding. I mean, the Bulgarians had also recently gotten their hands on some great Byzantine engineers, so now's the time, right? Now, I'm going to let Runciman take over in the description of what Omertag built. Quote, the great quadrilateral camp, by some two miles by four, surrounded with its rough, rough rampart and pierced with eleven gates, probably dates from the early years of Bulgar occupation. But the town had twice been destroyed by the emperor during the wars of Krum. The present inner citadel possibly postdated these wars. It consisted of a trapezium-shaped fortification with circular bastions at four angles, double rectangular bastions guarding four gates, and eight other bastions. Inside was the dwelling place of the Khans, a great hall, almost square, but trisected with columns, and with an apse for the throne, raised above the ground on a high substructure. It was no doubt in this hall that Krum placed the columns and sculptures that he carried off from the palace of St. Mamas. Close to the palace stood the heathen temple of the Khans, later to atone for its past by becoming a Christian church. End quote. Now, if you're going to imagine this palace, then you should know that if you visit Pliska today, these are the ruins that you're mostly going to see. But besides the capital, Omertag also built another palace on a narrow stretch of the Danube at Tartukan. This was both a palace and a fortress from which, from which he could monitor the area north of Pliska. Now, halfway between this, his capital and this new fortress-slash-palace that he built he built a third house, which would also double as his tomb. Oh, but Omertag was far from done. In 821, he built yet another fortress palace, this time to the south, guarding the approach to Pliska. A description was found on an unearthed column from this period. Quote, The sublime Khan Omertag, it says, is divine ruler in the land where he was born, dwelling in the camp of Pliska. He made a palace on the Tutsa and increased his power against the Greeks and the Slavs. And he skillfully made a bridge over the Tutsa. And he set up his fortress, four columns, and between the columns, two bronze lions. May God grant the divine ruler that he pressed down with his foot the emperor so long as the Tutsa flows and the enemies of the Bulgars are controlled. And may he subdue his foes and live in joy and happiness for a hundred years. End quote. Now, this new palace and the city which soon developed around it was probably at the time of Omerthog known by a variation of the Proto-Bulgarian for high renown. But eventually, it would become known by its Slavic name, Preslav. It was designed as a massive piece of propaganda. Now, you recall how one of the most important reasons why the Bulgarian defeats of the Byzantines were so important was that they helped shatter the carefully constructed myth that no barbarian tribe could ever defeat the Byzantines. Well, the Romans had the same technique. 
When used properly, this kind of propaganda is amazingly effective at discouraging revolt and attack. However, when it's gone, it's gone. So in a way, quite ironically, Omer Talk was seeking to build on the victories of the Khans which preceded him by building structures which would instill a sense of his state's power in its subjects and in neighbors. Bulgaria was attempting to transform itself from a strange tribe at the gates of the Byzantine world to an established legitimate power. And this process is going to be the defining process that's going to guide Bulgaria for quite some time into the future. But Bulgaria was still a long way from that stage. The inscriptions I just mentioned were written in rough Greek, as the Proto-Bulgarian and Slavic languages still had no alphabet. And they were likely written by Christians, a religion which was still strongly discouraged as it was seen as a tool of the emperor in Constantinople. It would take time for the Bulgarians to realize in their dealings with tribes in the north and Catholics in the west that it was indeed possible for them to obtain the legitimacy of Christianity without obtaining a master in the form of a Byzantine emperor in the process. But in the meantime, Christians would continue to be persecuted as threats to Omartag's authority and his people's pagan beliefs. Even his eldest son was disinherited for converting to Christianity and refusing to renounce it. But other things were definitely changing. The Slavs and the Proto-Bulgarians were continuing to mix, with only the highest-ranking aristocrats remaining purely Proto-Bulgarian. It was also at this stage that Omartag integrated the army, eliminating the former distinction between the Slavic infantry and the Proto-Bulgarian cavalry. So while we don't have a whole lot of details about this process, this is likely sort of the end of the first period of the Bulgarian military, or maybe the second, if you consider the Proto-Bulgarians existing as their own sort of horse tribe to be the first era of the Bulgarian military. The second is Proto-Bulgarian cavalry, Slavic infantry. Now we're moving towards a more professional, more integrated army. Now, we know even less about what was happening north of the Danube. Now, this is in part because much of this territory had only recently been conquered from the Avars, and partly because it was further from the Byzantines, who remain our main source on the period. But what we do know tells us that this area was lightly populated by a mixture of Bulgars, Avars, and Vlachs, with some Dacians and possibly even Latin-speaking Roman settlers still clinging on. This area would prove much more difficult to hold because of its lack of a cohesive population and culture, and because of its distance from the Bulgarian capital. Now, it was also around this time that changes would be set in motion in the vast eastern steppe, which would affect Bulgaria for centuries to come. The year 820 saw the very first signs of the Magyars on the river Don, which flows into the Sea of Azov in modern Russia. The Magyars the forefathers of modern Hungarians, that's Magyars, not Huns. Seriously, Hungarians, not descended from Huns. Common mistake. Magyars. <laughs> now, these Magyars would prove a fearsome enemy for both the Bulgarians and many other inhabitants of Central Europe. Their movement into Eastern Europe would further cut off connections between the Bulgarian state in the Balkans and the proto-Bulgarian state on the Volga River around the modern city of Kazan. Thus, sort of fortifying these differences between these different Bulgarian areas of settlement. Now, Omartag dies in 831 after a reign of 17 years. As we've seen, these years were relatively peaceful when we compare them to the previous decade, 
with a small conflict going on against the Byzantines, but you know, one to restore the legitimate uh, emperor, and some low-lying conflict with rebellions and wars against the Franks in the west and the northwest. But none of this, you know, huge existential battles and no sacking of capitals, none of that kind of stuff. But far more important than that was that Bulgaria was prosperous. The stabilization of relations with the Byzantine, Byzantines met greater trade and peace, which was good for everyone. Omentang's construction in several new places, these fortresses in these cities, showed that he must have had a lot of money to throw around. So, as I mentioned, in this sense, Omentang's reign marks another step on the Bulgarian path towards legitimacy in Europe. Runciman puts it well. He says, quote, He had shown the world, the West and the East alike, that Bulgaria was now to be numbered amongst the great powers of Europe, end quote. So, while Omertag is not as well known as his father, Hrum, in many ways his reign is even more important. Because, okay, Hrum was a great military leader, he expanded the borders, all these sorts of things. But, Omertag really set down some serious foundations for the future. He was a builder and not a destroyer. And for that, I think we can commend him. Next time, we're going to see a dynastic crisis as brother fights brother over religion and the throne. We're going to see renewed war with Byzantium as expansion into, and expansion into Macedonia. And we're ultimately going to see the entrance of a man who will change Bulgarian history forever, Boris I. So you remember I talked about how Omarthog disinherited his eldest son. So we're going to see these sons battle it out over who's going to take over. And we're going to, as I just mentioned, sort of see the twilight of the pagan era of Bulgarian history. It's going to be a great episode. So this podcast is produced by Martin Christoph. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Please help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook and telling your friends about us. Also, if you write a review on iTunes, that is hugely helpful. Also, please check out our website at bghistorypodcast.com, where you can find useful resources to come along with most episodes. Now, for this episode, we're going to have some maps up there, so you'll definitely want to check it out. Also, as always, consider making a donation with the PayPal button on the website. It makes a big difference for us every time. So, until next time, uspech, or in English, good luck.